one constant in college rugby is change. And there has been monumental changes in the last 15 years. Welcome back, everyone, to the second ever FCC podcast. Again, this is your host and Commissioner Kirk Swanner. Also on the call here, we got uh, Evan Haig, the FRU general manager and the coach you love to hate over at uh, UCF. So before we go any further, uh, today we are going to talk about my long-term vision for the FCC, um, why I proposed the FCC to begin with a couple of years ago, and what I want to see moving forward. But before we get there, I do just want to talk real briefly about why Evan is on the call, so why Evan's on the podcast here. So um, in general, uh, Evan, do you make any of the decisions that happens in the FCC? No, just like the rest of the FIU, my role is there to assist and to really help advise and make the actual stuff happen that we try to deliver. So, um, yeah, it's generally my role. So your input's good because you know policy really well. Um, but as far as the decisions go, that's usually by the, you know, for the FRU as a whole, it's by the board, by the various general, uh, vice presidents, and then for the FCC, the decisions really come down for me. Um, so your input's always valuable because of the policies of how the FRU runs. But, um, you know, usually when it comes down to decisions, I... I really don't like dictating decisions. I really try to get people's uh, opinions and I usually vote by, you know, like I, I don't talk to everyone at the same time, but I talk to everyone quite a bit separately and I usually get consensus and we usually just move forward that way. That's usually my general frame in which I make decisions, um, questions or comments. Evan, what do you think? Yeah, I also think, you know, I'm assuming that I wouldn't be the only coach you'd want on here in the future. There'll be opportunities for other coaches to jump on and get their opinions on things, just kind of like the way you call everybody around the union and just kind of get their opinions when making the decisions. It'd be the same with this podcast, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to get some more guys up on here. Uh, just hear people's thoughts or just kind of help. Um, yeah, just get some interesting perspectives. We definitely want to get more people onto the podcast. So, um, Evan, can you give us a brief history about how you landed into your role or you want to give us like your rugby background and like, why are you suited to be the general manager for Florida? No, thanks for putting me on the spot. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I moved here almost eight years ago now. Um, and I'll pre prior to that I was in Seattle. Um, and I was, uh, running a company called Adivus where I was, Back then, it was called Serevi Rugby, and we were doing camps and clinics all around the country, uh, various places around the world. Uh, my wife's from uh, Orlando, and she wanted to move back. And at the same time, the FIU was going through its restructure, and they needed to hire a general manager to come in and be an administrator. And the alignment worked out perfectly because I was looking to move down here, and there was an opportunity there. Um, for that, prior to that, uh, I grew up in Australia. I have a sports management degree. Uh, I've done various sports administrative uh, jobs. So everything from being a youth development officer to, you know, running, a, being a director of rugby at a semi-professional club to um, running director of programming at Adivis. So I have a kind of pretty wealth of experience. It's probably over 15 years of in the sports management industry. Um, and so it's just, it's, 
I use a lot of that when we think about the decision-making within that and a lot of the experiences that I've had over the last seven years within the union. Um, I really think in general, I think everybody really um, is trying to push in the same direction. That's the really exciting thing about being a part of this union down now. Nice. So the youth development officer, was that in Australia or was that, where was that at? I did it in multitude different spots. So actually I did it two different roles in Australia. One was for the uh, ACT Brumbies. Um, and that was the last one before I left. Uh, I did a couple other prior to that while I was still in college. Um, and then I also did um, some development stuff in the UK when I was over there uh, on a working holiday visa. And then when you said that you were a player, you're a director of rugby for a semi-pro team, was that old Puget? Yeah, that- OPSB or Seattle Rugby. We were in the process of merging and creating those things. And that was my role there was the director of rugby of all of those programs. So basically in that role, I was the head coach of the Super League team, um, along with the seventh program. I uh, were pretty successful during my time there. And that kind of laid the seed of what we were trying to create was what ended up being the... MLR team, that is the Seattle Seawolves. So we kind of sent it down that direction, the vision from the club directors, um, the board and so on from that, and the merger of both Seattle team and the OPSB team. They were both two D1 clubs in one city. We created a powerful program and we really tried to, our goal was to drive, to create basically what became the MLR team. Um, the Seattle program is still there and they kind of sit underneath as a feeder program to the MLR team in Seattle. So just a brief history, because you touched on a couple of interesting points here. Like, so you talked about, um, what, is it, is it, what was it called? Is it um, Super, Super Rugby? Uh, no, it was called, we called the USA Rugby, uh, USA Super League. So it was Super basically, League. yeah, that's right. It was all the premier teams in the country, uh, teams right. that come in and out. Uh, I think the closest it team is, in Atlanta with life were in it for a very long time. But it's basically uh, semi-pro rugby yeah. it was the top it was the top level of rugby that happened in america for quite a long period of time mm-hmm. um it eventually went defunct what late 20 2012 that was when okay. uh, we were we lost the final by three points that year in the final year of the super league um what happened was there was just kind of some misalignment you know, obviously geography was a big issue and there was just misalignment of people's goals of what they really wanted to achieve and where they wanted to spend their money on it. Um, because it was a very much everybody pooled their money. Um, so you say, let's say our travel costs, which were upwards is $150,000 a year in Seattle. We would send that in and then we would get money back from the rest of the other clubs because our travel was so much more than say the Northeast clubs where there was drivable busable distances for them. So the conflict was that they were paying us money to be a part of something when they really barely ever saw us to play us. So it just kind of really was a complicated mess um, that just ran its course. And I think it created out of the back of that, a lot of the teams that really wanted to make this thing happen, started to create stronger leagues and bonds. And that's kind of where the MLR grew out of. I mean, the reason I bring this up is because um, when we talk about, uh, rugby in Florida, you know, I do believe that the ecosystem as a whole needs to be very strong. So I think bringing the colleges back into the FRU, so that way we weren't this separate entity, right? Where the, to me, the colleges are the linchpin from the high school into the men. So like we need to have the ecosystem in Florida as strong as possible in order to do that. The colleges, it's best that the colleges are in this ecosystem as well. 
um, I mean, so when you came here, like, what was your interpretation or what do you feel like as far as the colleges? I just think even, it, in, even in general, I think uh, the youth programs was sitting separate. A lot of the high school programs were not directly aligned on any men's or women's programs. The colleges were sitting separate. It was confusing. We had UF playing in one conference and then the rest of us playing in another conference that was dictated by the majority that was sitting outside of our state that had different weather constraints than ours. Um, none of that was understood by our union. So that's why it made sense not to be a part of them. But then now when we started to get, dig more deep into it, we we're actually not helping each other out effectively. And I felt, felt pretty divided. It's probably the best way of putting it. It was very much siloed, which was the traditional way USA rugby has been driven. And they haven't given me a lot of confidence that it's still not siloed. And what I mean by siloed is there's three separate pools or groups and they don't tend to work very well together and not create what you're calling the ecosystem or what I would call the community. And we just, our, our community, when it's disjointed, doesn't flow through. So um, if you would imagine our community should look like a flow chart. It should start with where the player enters in high, you know, middle school and go to high school and to college, from college into senior man, and then from senior man, they get back into coaching again, either at the high school or at the high school level, and then that coach then gives back again into coaching senior man and just kind of follow that path or college and so on. So, like, there needs to be a cycle of them giving back in and through, and that connection has just been lost for a very long time is what it feels like here in Florida. And we're slowly getting it back in, building those connections between the high school or the college and the college into the senior game. And it's just kind of getting that understanding of how important that is. And I think that's something that I thoroughly enjoy when working with you is how passionate you are about trying to create those connections. Yeah. I appreciate the, uh, yeah. Making my ego bigger. It always helps. Um, Kirk, I'm here for you, mate. Uh, do I mean, did you felt like when your time in Seattle, I mean, have you spent time elsewhere in America besides Seattle and Florida? Yeah, I was uh, in San Diego for six months playing a Super League team down there. Um, it was fun. Um, they were a better structured club than what so we were back on, then. Um, that's on back. That was on back. Yeah. So the thing about on back, and I think about a lot of these powerful clubs is they're just very well supported by old boys. They, got themselves into strong positions and have been able to maintain that for long periods of time. Um, I know Ombak's kind of fallen a little bit on the wayside um, of recent times, but yeah, definitely had some experiences there. Um, obviously played some all-star rugby. Um, so I was able to kind of see different parts and interact with different people around, um, you know, done lots of camps and, you know, high performance teams and things around as well. And those, those have been really, really eye-opening. Everywhere has its slight quirks and that things that don't quite work for them, but then, and then they have their real positive things that really work from and, and the people in the community really trying to drive things forward. So that's, that's always yeah. been the, the nature of the American game is it's been driven very grassroots by very passionate people. So, I mean, the reason I ask about other parts, like, so how does the Florida community, like, is, is the disjointedness in the community here or what we felt previously, is that common in other parts of the country or is it like specific, yeah. you know, is it special to Florida? I think Florida has its own special problems, but I also okay. think it, that they're not, they're not too just 
too distinct from the other areas. There's always seems to be dysfunction within it. Um, you know, they're, they're constantly battling for recruitment and retention. Um, I think our biggest issue is the quality of what we play and what we're exposed to play at is what we kind of, what falls us behind. I think we have great passionate people. We have some really talented coaches out there and people who really have a strong vision for what they want. And I think that's amazing. I think that the problem that I see is that we just don't, we just can't get ourselves to play high enough level of rugby to really drive that in. Um, and it's just, and we don't have an appreciation of what other levels of rugby look like. And I, and I, that's something that I have struggled with being here for seven years and coaching UCF. It's, it's this balancing act of how much money do you want to spend to go chase a good game to go get smashed by life? You know, like, so those are the really difficult points. It's this, this um, component with that. And, and I don't think that's too dissimilar to other areas. I just don't think we have access to go chasing the best rugby as easily as maybe some other areas do. So, so you're not talking about the college in general. You're talking about like Florida as a whole. Though, Florida right? as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Florida, Florida okay. as a whole. And, you know, my experience with college rugby in the North, in Northwest, sorry, was, was not that, um, not that extensive. Uh, I helped central Washington for a while there and we went to the CRC and we were helping them and there, but they were on a building phase to becoming a varsity program. So even their quality, I think at that time when I was helping them was more on the upper levels of our, our teams, kind of a level where USF and FAU are at right now, kind of those levels, I think is where they were at, but then they were able to really power all the way through once they became varsity and become a pretty good program nationally. So I think what you like quote unquote problems that you're talking about can also be strengths for Florida. You know, when I look at the statistics of Florida compared to like other parts, like the Northeast in California, you know, I think Florida is the 25th largest state in, in landmass. It's the fourth largest state in population. So when you look at population density, it puts it on track with places like California, with places like the Northeast, which is, I think, stronger than places like the Northwest. So like, and the population of Florida is not going down. Uh, it's going to continue to increase. So I think there's so much opportunity in Florida that we just got to capitalize on it and get the right systems in place so that we can have these long-term uh, yeah, I, waves of growth and, I, and make them sustainable. I agree with that, Kirk. And I think there's this, like I was saying, there's a perception we need to go chase it too. And I think that's a really difficult task to happen. Whereas we can lean in and really try to improve what we're doing and really focus on that. Um, and I think that's ultimately the probably the benefit of COVID to some extent is we can even regionalize within Florida as a whole, like trying to really help each other and you know push these things forward. You know that that's definitely something that I, I see as an opportunity that can really, really help us take off. We are not, our population bases are booming. Um, we're not the big cities yet of, you know, the Midwest or um, the Northeast, you know, but there, we definitely have the bases that are really starting to boom and we have the opportunities to grow into that. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to touch on real quick that you brought up was, you know, when you came here eight years ago, you're talking about the restructuring. That was the transition of the men's divisions from the TU territorial union system to the GU, the geographic union system. 
Um, so previously, uh, Florida, the FRU was an LAU, a local area union, which then was a part of the South TU, USA Rugby South. So the USA Rugby South Panthers is where they actually originate from. Was They were the all-star program for the South, which is the territory, which there are seven territories around the country that then followed up to, to USA Rugby. That was like the old um, pathway that you would talk about. Now, a couple of years before the TU to GU uh, system happened, the colleges had spun away and created these conferences. That was probably three years before that, I think, something like that. Um, and that's how you got the colleges kind of broken off away because the colleges used to be a part of the local area union. So what we're doing right now with the FCC, which I believe we are maybe the only conference, collegiate conference attached to a GU, to a, a graphical geographic union, it is not unprecedented, actually. It's, that's the way things used to be. So I just wanted to bring up that point because um, you didn't really deal much with the, you would have been up in the Pacific Northwest at that time. Did you deal with the TU systems that much or were you just focused more at the Super well, so we, Super we League was independent of the TU system, wasn't it? Correct, but we still had to pay TU fees. Um, so we were part of the Pacific Coast and then the Pacific Northwest. Um, and it was always a political mess within that because we, we didn't get any value out of them other than referees. Um, which is very similar to what we were dealing with from a collegiate standpoint here. We, our really only value for Florida for a while was um, access, to refs. Know, access to refs. And I, and I think that's changed. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why we've, you and I have been pretty active in trying to make sure that the colleges are very well supported here in the union. And I think Kerry's done a great job of giving you the freedom to attack that and to really make sure that the colleges feel welcome and a part of that. And I think that was typified last year by their willingness to allow us to create a U23 league just so the colleges could somewhat stay together. So I think wow. all in all in the first was it three years we're in now or four years, I think three it's been years. really I think it's been really positive for us. Um, I think there's a lot of improvement left in us, but um, yeah, I definitely foresee us continuing this for a while yet um which probably you know leads us to another pathway right Kirk, in yeah. terms of yeah of, of what things look like for us in the future and things like that and it's probably you know like what do you what do you foresee our clubs well, looking like from a college yes. standpoint we're gonna get there one second the last point i want to bring up is that you just brought up how much of a political mess things used to be um and and the, the TU to GU system was basically a political reformation of how USA Rugby was supposed to operate. We just basically went through another one with the USA Rugby going bankruptcy. And so, you know, what I want us to do is not replicate the same mistakes that happened in the past, because a lot of the issues in the past were literally political problems that never got resolved. And so that's why a lot of times I, you know, to me, politics is the discussion of policies. And basically what the FRU does is we create policies. So basically everything we do is inherently political. So we actually need to, like, I actually think we need to be more political and more open and more transparent and, and talk more about politics in an open manner. So that way we don't create these political uh, divides that will then lead to problems. So like, 
that's the one thing I definitely try to do a lot is communicate and talk about politics because I think that's what caused the rift last time. And I don't want to replicate that stuff again. But to your point, where does the FCC go in the future? So um, yeah, like my vision for the next, again, when we started the FCC, it wasn't a permanent solution. It was an eight to 10 year solution. I never said it was going to be permanent. Um, we're three years in, so we got probably another five to seven years to go. Um, before I give you my vision, I want to put some vocabulary together so that way you guys can understand what I'm thinking. So um, to me, the first thing I want to talk about is what um, is, is some differences between a team, a club, and what I call an institution, okay? So teams... And we're, and we're talking about in the college context here, teams are student run. Uh, these, are, these are some traits of what I call these different categories, right? So some traits of teams would be student run, maybe it's player coach, maybe you have a volunteer coach, you're super dependent on school funding, right? So your dues are pretty low, you're really dependent on what the school gives in the allocations on a yearly basis. Um, you've got one team, right? Like maybe you have enough numbers for a second team occasionally, but, um, but most likely you don't. And what really happens a lot is that there's just this constant loss of institutional knowledge. There's not someone there for the long term that can help keep the program operating at a higher level, right? So basically is that a team is very dependent on the outside forces pushing against them. Uh, now, I'm not saying that they won't play at a high level sometimes. Like they'll catch a vein of really good form and a bunch of good players coming in and they'll compete sometimes, you know, like there'll be a couple of years where they're going to be smoking it, right? But it's usually not going to be consistent on a year-to-year -year basis, right? Like they're dependent on new players coming in and, and they have to use the preseason to develop those players to compete in their league games that spring. So that's what I'm calling a team, right? The next level up in organization, I would say, is a club, okay? So some traits for clubs would be you've got more than one team, right? You have two teams. So now with two teams, you're not dependent on the preseason to develop for the spring. You're actually able to use your reserve grade this year to develop your first grade players for next year, right? So now you have this longer term horizon for development, um, you either have a volunteer coach or maybe your coach is getting a stipend. Um, you have the ability to retain institutional knowledge. So, um, what, yeah, ability to retain institutional knowledge. You may or may not have an, an alumni group. If you do have one, you know, maybe they're just organizing an alumni weekend, maybe a couple bucks here and there. Um, you are maybe creating systems for uh, stability. Uh, but they're not fully entrenched. Um, you're less dependent on school funding. You're able to navigate issues with the school better. But again, these aren't permanent systems that are guaranteed forever, right? So it's more like a house of cards than it is like a real house, if that makes sense. Um, and then the last thing I would say is what I would call institutions. These are high performance long-term sustainable clubs, right? These have permanent systems in place of stability. Um, 
they have an alumni, large alumni groups and parent groups that are bringing a bunch of money. They got paid coach. They are not susceptible to when the winds on campus change, they're not going to get blown over, right? They are, they are resilient to outside political forces pushing against them. So what, what I call institution, it doesn't mean varsity. It doesn't have to mean varsity, right? I mean, we could talk about the different styles of varsity programs, quote unquote, varsity programs in the country. Um, but there's other systems, other um, statuses that these clubs can have, right? You can be a, a ghost varsity, basically meaning you get access to a lot of the varsity systems, a lot of the varsity um, facilities, but you're not technically varsity. Um, you can be an elevated club status, which is kind of similar, basically like you're a club, but you're given more freedom or you're able to be not student run. You'll be run by a coach, but you're technically still a club. Um, you know, there's so many different ways here, right? I mean, everyone could talk about like life, right? Because life is varsity. It is an athletic varsity program. But Lindenwood, also varsity, is not an athletic varsity program. I think it's called a lifestyle varsity. Do you know the, the actual term for Lindenwood? It's a, it's a complicated term. It also doesn't help the Lindenwood. It's also a very small school, so they have different operating procedures and a traditional larger school too. Same with life. Right. So like you, UC Berkeley, uh, they are a varsity program, but the only way that they're varsity is that they have large endowments that they basically fund, fundraise multi-million dollars. They gave that multi-million dollars to their school foundation and then they don't touch the principal. They don't touch the original money they gave the school, but they run off the interest that's generated. And the interest that's generated is enough to pay for their coach to be paid through the school, enough to pay for their, um, their kids to get access to the weight room. They're basically paying for their varsity status. And uh, a couple of years back when funding to uh, the UC system was cut, there is actually, they're actually going to cut some of the women's programs, women varsity programs on campus at UC Berkeley, which meant that um, rugby was potentially on the chopping block for, for being cut as a varsity program. And the rugby team came up with the money necessary to pay for these women's programs so that way they maintained their varsity status, right? I mean, when I talk about an institution that is not, they are not susceptible to outside winds of change, like that is what I'm talking about. Does that make sense, Evan? Yeah, so Kirk, you know, um, I know you're long-winded anyway, but uh, give me the 10-second 101 of how Berkeley became that varsity program um, with the weather. I know you kind of steered a little bit on it, but just give me, give me that kind of the 101 because I think it's a really interesting um, Can I? Can it be point. three minutes? Not Let's say seconds. two minutes. Okay. You got a minute. So um, Cal Berkeley has been – the rugby has been on Cal Berkeley's campus for over a hundred years. They've had six head coaches in that time frame. So currently it's Jack Clark, who's been program has been coaching I mean, for over 30 years. The guy before that was in charge for eight years. The guy before him was Doc Hudson, who was in charge for 40 years. Doc Hudson was a Kiwi dentist in Berkeley. And he basically, I, my understanding is that they did tours quite a bit, right? So they were so organized with Doc Hudson in charge is that, um, they would play in the springtime. They get a lot of their football play. Like they were, they were operating at such a high level 
that they're var- that they're varsity football players in the springtime when they come play rugby. Um, and they also go and tour, right? So they were operating at such a high level. They had multiple sides. They toured around a whole bunch, like from a, from a performance standpoint, organizationally, they were very strong for 40 years under Doc Hudson, right? When the predecessor to him took over, that guy was in charge there for eight years. And then when Jack Clark came in, I believe in the late eighties or during the eighties, early, early nineties, when title nine was coming down the pike, he realized what was going to happen. And he went back to those 50 plus years of folks that have come through a high performing program, asked them for donations, got a boatload of money, multiple millions of dollars, gave it to the school foundation and paid for his, their varsity status. So Jack Clark, my understanding is the person that saw this coming, organized it, got the money together and basically created his own paid coaching position at UC Berkeley. So do you think that's something that it's feasible these days for one of our call uh, any one of the schools to teams to do? Absolutely. I mean, to me, that is the model that we should be following. My understanding is that UCLA also just kind of went down that route, right? So I believe UCLA rugby is now a varsity program. I was talking with Rick and he was showing me some stuff. So to me, when you look at the varsity programs around the country, right? Like, I don't think anybody in any of the major state schools in Florida are going to be like life, right? Like life chiropractic has a massive rugby history. And I'm guessing that's what helped force their university to take rugby undergrad varsity. Um, but, you know, none of, none of UCF, USF, Florida State, UF, FIU, none of them are going to none of their schools are going to take on the liability of an additional contact sport for free. They're not, they're not going to do it. So, so to recap, is that mean get your money first and then go banging on the door? Don't go banging on the door. Then ask how much money they need. Money, money fucking talks, man. Right. Like the FSU lacrosse program, FSU lacrosse club, um, they paid for the turf field that the band plays on it's a it's a turf field right on the middle of campus it used to be an old dirt lot or a grass field that would get beat up every year they paid for that thing to become turf and that became their home field right like they basically had full access like they had the key to that field no one else does the band and lacrosse team because lacrosse paid for that field so money talks especially on campuses right they're all trying to build out the facilities they're all trying to do something they're all cash strapped like money money talks so then the next piece is how many of our teams or clubs we'll call them clubs uh where do you think most of our teams and clubs fit into your little scale thing you have because i think that's kind of where you're heading with this conversation is to get out to get that money you really need to be set up as an institution to some extent or heading towards the institution to do that so how do you yeah, how, many, how way- far along do you think our teams are and our clubs are the way I see it is that in order to become an institution, you need to be a club and a very high performing club for a long period of time. So how long do you have to be a high performance club? You know, like under the Cal model, it's 50 years, right? Who are some other potential programs that we can look at? Clemson's another one. They've got a paid coach. I don't think they were operating at um, for 50 years the way that Cal was, but I know that Clemson was a, good d1 program in the south for i don't know 30 years 
like is can it can we make it happen in 30 can we make it happen in 20 i'm not sure actually what the number is but i do believe that you do need to be a high performing club until the point that you go institution does that make sense yeah well, so, I, think, I, th- I think the reality of an album for my little UCF hat on is actually creating that plan and that thought process. Um, this is very easy right now for us to get caught in a year-to-year survival mode. And I think that's, you know, be brutal. And that's where we're at right now. It's where I know my club is at. We're just trying to get through and survive and rebound from COVID. Um, the thought of pushing forward um, beyond that is is difficult. Um, so what do you, what would you suggest in kind of my, my scenario that I have? Yeah. So, I mean, all this kind of goes back to my kind of my original thoughts is that it all comes down to organization. The more organized a team is, the more numbers they can sustain, the more numbers they can sustain, the more revenue they're bringing in, the more money they have, and then money helps solve problems. So what do you do this year at UCF? Yeah, like just be organized, run good training sets. Like, so be organized in your recruiting so that way you recruit as many people as possible, right? Be organized in how you train, schedule your trainings, be organized so that you can then um, get assistant coaches Make sure they feel empowered so that they can come out to training. This is another topic I want to talk at some point is like who actually does the coaching. Um, And then, you know, like make it easy for people to be a part of the club, you know, make it easy, have systems in place that are so easy that a kid can come and like know where, you know, like what they're supposed to wear at training, what time they're supposed to show up. Like, I don't know if you want to share your, your practice schedule ahead of time or what, or like, you know, have the unofficial communication system so that way they know where the party's at so they can feel a part of the program, right? The brotherhood aspect of rugby is super important. That's definitely something that we should not be losing. And then you, it's just, it's this yearly grind that you have to do, but you, it takes some time and effort up front to organize. And then it's just the execution part of it. So like, what do you do? You just got to put in some time and effort, man. All right. So, get I, <laughs> so I, I'll go back now to my vision of the FCC of what happens. Okay. So to me, there's, I, I talked about a little bit in the last podcast, like there's kind of, we can, we could potentially be playing fall rugby. We potentially could be playing spring rugby. And in this, there's three possible scenarios here. Okay. So ultimately what I would love to see the FCC do, the purpose of me pushing for this is that I would like to see, as a conference, we go into D1A, right? D1A allows us, uh, you know, the, the purpose of the FCC, again, is that we have things happen now on our terms, right? We dictate the terms of the macro schedule. Joining D1A is the best way to maintain the current macro schedule we have in place now. The reason I'm pushing for the macro schedule, right? that we have now is because it's the easiest way to grow big programs, right? Like you need the least amount of people in the beginning. And there's this, there's this crescendo or this increasing of pressure as the year goes on and it has a natural climax at the end of the spring, at the end of the 15 season. Does that make sense? That's why I think this macro schedule is so important because we need to have big programs 
And this macro schedule allows that. So as a conference, we go D1A, we're able to maintain our macro schedule and we're playing spring ball. So the, uh, the next option down is that in, in order for us to go D1A, I think we need to be having five programs, at least five on the road to institution status. They don't need to be institution, but they need to be very high performing programs, very high performing clubs that have systems in place that we do think will be in place for the next 10 years. Does that make sense? If we have at least five, then we're able to go up as a conference. If we don't have five, I don't think the numbers are going to work out, right? Like you can't have one team go up, right? Because why, why, is, why is that, Kirk? What do, you, what do you think? Why can't we go with one or two? Why can't Florida State and UF decide they just want to move up? Because you have to go up into a, into a, a league or a conference somewhere. And what are you going to do? You're going to join the Mid-South? That's the only one you really have right now, right? Bye. That means you're playing life, Arkansas State, Lindenwood, and – I also, think Grand it, Rapids. I also think it's really valid as well for you to think about this too, is the fact that a bunch of teams from the South have moved back down to the SERC. Um, I think it would befit everybody because I just went through it with Gomez and we were looking at opportunities to tour and who we would think about maybe trying to attack in the SERC in the fall. And there's just no opportunity really, to be honest, because so many of the programs that were D1A that were playing some spring ball and now all yep. in the fall and all right. playing back down our pseudo D1, D1AA level. So there's this, I still think there's some movement still yet to go in the college landscape before even that D1A settles as the right pathway forward for us to go. I agree. I'm, I'm, not dis, I'm not disagreeing with you one bit. You know, like, and is it really unfortunate that we are like the only conference east of the Mississippi playing spring rugby and it's super difficult for us to get a fall preseason match? Yes, it is super shitty. Okay. But what's the one constant in college rugby? It's change. So we just, right now, the pendulum has swung away from us and we're in a, you know, and it's frustrating as hell. It's going to come back around. So we just need to be patient. But also, like, I think, I think Gomez said it best. We're trying. We're not going to move to fall rugby just so we can get a couple of spring friendly games. That doesn't. That doesn't seem beneficial. We need to be right. doing what's best for us. It is an almighty challenge for us to try to play rugby down here in the fall, uh, particularly competitively. I just when we did it a couple of years ago, it just was not fun and difficult. And what did Gomez say to you the other day, Kirk? It was something like, "I not. I will never want to go back to doing that." It was something along those lines. Yeah, you'll never want to play fall. Never want to play fall. And, and it's not that we don't want to play fall. We want to get them. It's just that it's so difficult to get the quality of our rugby up to the level that we need to be by that stage. So the second um, possibility I see is we do play fall rugby. Now, for that to happen, it's a different scenario, right? Like if we were going to play fall rugby, we need – we'd have to be very strong clubs, right? With no ambition to go into D1A, right? Like this is assuming that in, in these scenarios, I'm assuming that uh, things stay the way they are, right? Like, cause my understanding with the SCRC is that they are club. They're, they're not interested in going, I'm playing against varsity programs. So therefore they're not really interested in going and playing D1A. Maybe if D1A creates a bowl game system, maybe, 
right? But the SCRC already has their bowl game system in December in Charlotte. So and, like they've and, got and what they, they want. And I think they sit, Marty says this each time you talk to him and I talk to him too, is that they sit in a position of power and probably a little bit more than us because the brand of schools that they now right. have within that are some of the top brands in terms of college sports in the country. Um, so just like us, if we really focus on making that strong like they're trying to do, I think the opportunities will come knocking because of the brand of schools that we have on our doorstep in our conference and then also the fact that they're there. That I don't foresee them wanting to change away from fall, but there may be more partnership opportunities with them in the future in other ways. Yeah, totally. I mean, um, so for those that don't know, Marty Bradley is the commissioner for the SCRC. Um, which is the Southeast Rugby Conference, Collegiate Rugby Conference. Um, they're the ones that basically we are surrounded by, right? Like Florida touches only SCRC territory. So, yeah, like they have, you know, Alabama, they have Georgia, they, Clemson is now joined in with them, Tennessee, Georgia Tech. I mean, they got all the SCC schools, so... Yeah, and I think they may – now, LSU went somewhere else, but I don't think it's long before LSU joins them too. Well, so LSU is a funny one because they're on the outer perimeter and they're between two. So they, I, I, previously they were with the Red River, and I'm not sure if they still are. They left, but, Red, they left Red River and went to some other – the other okay. smaller conferences. I don't think it's long before Marty's kids smile. I, well, LSU is – I think will always bounce around. I don't – because they're they're right in the middle of probably three conferences and none of them work incredibly well for them. This is, you know, like Florida state used to be in a similar situation. When I first started playing, they could have gone Florida. They could have gone Georgia. They could have gone deep South. And this is when colleges were attached to LAUs. Now I'm a big proponent of them being in Florida because the majority of the students come from South Florida. So I think it's advantageous for Florida state to travel to South Florida because that is where their, their fan base is at. Right. Yeah. And like, and, and I'm sure Ken has probably similar thoughts. It'd be, it'd be interesting probably sometime in the future here if you brought Ken yeah. on and got his thoughts that he he was a part of the SCRC and now it was part the, of Florida. It, the travel was too much is what he said. And, um, and, and, and back in the day when the ACC uh, conference was, was getting up and going, like there was a chance Florida State was going to join it. But once we looked at the travel schedule and they lost out on Georgia Tech, would have been our closest team, like if Georgia Tech had gone into the ACC conference, there would have been a, it would have been a toss up if Florida State would have gone into it or not. And this this is back in 2011 or something like this. So, um, changing conferences for affiliation like is not unheard of. Uh, that's why I I, <laughs> I really want to work to make sure everyone understands that the FCC like we we are much stronger when we work together. Uh, and the best way we work together is if we communicate, but um, I, like, but I do think that there is a chance that we all, there, there is a chance that we do play fall rugby in a couple of years time, right? What would be the deciding factors for that is if we really want a national championship, right? Like if we are sick and tired of this local stuff where you guys don't find value in winning Florida um, and, and you got, and the clubs in Florida are dying for a national championship, then the best solution is to join is to play fall rugby and go down that rabbit hole. But like, imagine what it's going to take to have to play games in September 
in October during hurricane season, right? Like imagine what you're going to have to do to get prepared to play. Like there's no, there's no good preseason, right? Like you're basically straight into your season. So do you now have to do a preseason in the springtime preparing for the next fall? Like, what do you do with incoming freshmen? You know, like, yeah, it's a, it's a whole quagmire of detailed planning that would need to change pretty significantly for us. Um, I don't even want to think about it because I'm not a proponent of it, but if that was where we were heading, I think we'd have to have a lot of these type calls and probably with some people who from the South, uh, like Marty, I don't know what they do to prepare themselves for gameplay through the fall, because that would really help us understand what that would look like. Um, yeah. But I, I think we've hit this subject pretty well, you know, okay. like it, yeah, on, the, the reality is, is the future looks like lots of opportunities and we've just got to work out how, which one is the right one for us to take. The last, the last possibility I see here is that we don't do any development and we stay where we're at and we stay independent and maybe we have some clubs, maybe we have some teams, you know, like no, no movement towards institution status, right? Like we just become clubs, some are high-performing, some are not. And we stay where we're at. That's a third possibility. That's your preferred method, right? Uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, not at all. Like, if that's what happens in, uh, like, in the next five to seven years, then I have been an adjunct failure, right? Like a total and obvious failure as a commissioner. So, well, yeah, I don't see that happening. I think there's a lot of really good stuff happening, and so went for COVID. I think we'd be a lot further along already in this past. So, all right. Um, the last thing we can talk about here is going to be eligibility. Okay. And it kind of ties into the last topic we talked about. So we're going to continue with the same eligibility standards. USA rugby has been following. It's basically the same eligibility standards that D1A follows. I believe the, you know, and, and D1AA, they're all following it. Mine so, the same too. So what does that just give us? There's three broad categories that they have to be, right, Kirk? What are, do well, you, you know this stuff. Yeah, go for yeah. it. You know better than I do. So. Okay. So um, this is probably the hardest one that people get, get their head around. You have um, seven years to play five years of rugby. So um, basically what that means is once you graduate high school, your clock starts ticking and you have five years of eligibility. Uh, if you somehow reason come to rugby later, you have up to seven years to have played five years of rugby in that time period. So there's somewhat of a two-year window. Those extra two years are solved on waivers. Um, you must be a full-time student. Um, the only caveat to that is if you are in a program that part of the normal coursework is that you are just slightly less than full-time, uh, a lot of engineers suffer from that one. I think there's a few other different ones around in the different uh, categories in there. Um, if you're a graduating senior, you in your final year, sometimes you're not full time because you just don't know. There's only so many classes you have available for you to do. Um, so that's another reason to do that. Again, that's wavered. Um, and then you must be in good standing with your school. Um, and good standing means a 2.0, I believe, grade ad point average. So you can't be failing. You must have paid all your financials. The school must allow you to play. So they're the three broad categories that. Um, require you have to require if you can tick all of those boxes so you're a full-time undergrad student um you're not within you know five years of graduating high school and you're in compliance school you're straightforward there are some 
little caveats in around there for graduates and so on, which will probably lead to what Kirk's probably going to talk about here, right, Kirk, is how do we maybe help other teams around this? But the idea would be that we follow that as we've always done because we we should know how to do that and the school registrar's office will be able to submit you the paperwork for that. Right. Yeah, so my from what I remember from the USA Rugby eligibility stuff was that graduate students that went to the same as undergrad, I think, still had eligibility, but if you went somewhere else, you didn't have eligibility. If they, if they have a fifth year of eligibility, um, so let's okay. say you graduated school, went to Florida State for four years, graduated, and you've got one more year of eligibility and you're in grad school, you can do that either at your school or in another institution. It doesn't, right. doesn't matter where that is, as long as you got a fifth. If there was some gap year for injury or anything else, you just have to show dispensation for that. Right. But you cannot get two years of graduate school. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the way I basically look at college rugby is that it's mostly an age restriction. So um, basically that's why the, I thought the U23s was a very similar fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like what, what needs to happen, you know, there's that equity and athletics page that INSCRO used to determine who was uh, quote unquote a small college and who wasn't. And in that it shows the number of full-time male undergraduate students each university has. So when you look at our eight FCC schools, five of them are over 10,000. So I think FIU and UF are at 10 and 11,000. Florida State and UF are 12 and 13,000. I don't remember the exact order, but it's around that. And then Orlando, or sorry, UCF is a monster program at 18,000. I know in general, UCF and Arizona State are the two largest colleges in the country. Um, and then the other three schools we have, uh, FAU, I think is around the seven to 8,000 program, seven to 8,000 full-time male undergraduate students. And then you have FGCU and UNF who are both around 4,500 to 4,800, somewhere in there. So uh, this is actually a, a topic that Evan and I differ on. Me personally, um, while we're in the FCC, while we're independent, while we're able to make up our own rules, uh, I am actually in favor of differing eligibility standards based on school size. Like my my belief on this is that once you get to ten thousand, you're all the same. I don't care. But should FGCU and UNF have more lax eligibility standards so that way they can potentially recruit have more people to recruit from i'm actually in favor of that fau's a great situation because they're at seven to eight thousand I'm, I'm also okay with giving them a little bit of help not as much help as fgcu and unf that's my personal opinion but again i don't rule by decree i actually rule through consensus of what the programs want so i'm always interested to hear uh feedback on this but i know evan you don't really like this as much right no because I get the principle of it, and I and I like the idea of helping out the smaller schools. My issue comes is the fact that that help could actually help out all of the programs. Um, I don't think any of our teams or clubs are so big um, that that is the sole reason why they're dominating. I think we have a good pool to pull from, but none of our clubs are huge. Like our my club isn't any near anywhere near proportionally bigger than FAU's club or Florida State's club just because my school size is that. Um, So there's a lot of underlying issues of why that is, why we have problems with things. Um, You know, we're a heavy transfer school, but so are a lot of other schools in Florida. You know, like there's lots of different things. And I just think 
if our principal goal is to grow us into institutions and in which we're trying to create opportunities that allow everybody to try to get to that point um, as quickly as possible. Now, if we're at a, if I got a hundred plus kids here going into my team and my club, which is where I'd love to be, I think those eligibility rules would be a lot more relevant for us. But at the moment, if we were to create certain rules for one team and not another, it becomes a really difficult situation for us and um, to even maintain our club or grow it forward. So that's that's where I kind of come in. I, would, I don't think we're at the scalability where we should be drawing things back or just trying to siphon them off differently because I don't think that we're significantly more powerful than any other team um, in the state. Right. So I mean, I hear you. Like, and obviously who can participate in a sport club, a campus sport club is dictated by the school first and foremost, right? So what we're talking about right now is the nuance of part-time students and graduate students. They can participate, if they're a student of your university, they can compete, they can play and train at your, at, with your club. The question is, do they have eligibility to play on the first grade, right? This is what we're talking about at the moment. Correct, and that first grade, is where the value is driven at this given time within our clubs. And I think that's, mm. that's, that's where the rub comes. So yeah, that's, um, that's your, that's I, your opinion. I don't actually share that one, but yeah, but I, I don't, I don't have the ability to give value to anybody else another way at this time. So, right. but yeah, that's, I, that's where we get focused significant. So that is a conversation that can be had. If you guys want to have it, feel free to reach out to me. Now, the other topic that we don't, agree with eye to eye with uh, is consortium agreements. So for those that don't know, uh, a consortium agreement is an agreement that your university might have with a local community college or with other colleges nearby that will allow the other, so based, I'll, I'll just start using names. So Evan just told me that UCF now is a consortium agreement with Valencia Community College. So this allows Valencia Community College students to participate with sports clubs on UCF campus. It also might allow, it depends on the consortium agreements, like if Valencia Community College kids are allowed on, you know, like into the UCF gym, right? If they're allowed uh, and to use other facilities on UCF's campus or not, right? These are all dependent on the university's um, agreements, individual agreements, but um, consortium agreements in general in the college rugby collegiate eligibility standards is a really hot button topic um, that has, yeah. So once you start talking about it with the, with the big high-performing programs, it's a touchy subject. Not all, there's, and there's, there's no consensus nationally on it, but. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's, and, and it's, a, it's an issue that I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I think the general concept of kids going to community college first and then transferring in both for economics and grade point right. um, is pretty significant. Um, and I can only speak for my team on that sense, but we have a very high amount of kids who've played high school rugby or played at another school that have to get some grades in order at Valencia before they can transfer back in. So we're talking about existing rugby players that don't really fit in with the local men's club. So they end up playing with us, but kind of stuck on the B side and nearly somewhat illegally. So now the schools allowed that kind of process to open. So where I come at it is I would like those kids to have the opportunity to play at whatever level they, they can at the club. And I think that's what Kirk and I get from. Yeah, my, my, 
uh, opinion on this. In general, I don't care about consortium agreements. If your university has one, I'm okay with you guys using it. I do have a categorical stance against UCF getting one because you're already at 18,000. Your, your point that it's a high transfer school, I need to dig in, into the statistics a bit more. But when I looked at the UCF transfer, the, um, the number of first time enrolled in college compared to the transfers for the one year I found, it was 6,000 first time enrolled in college. So those are freshmen coming into college, 6,000 and 10,000 were transfers. So uh, you do have a you do have a valid point there that I'm not discounting, and I'm not saying my stance is um, non like I, that I'm not willing to change my stance. I am, of course, but I need to see some more statistics and need to have a good argument on it. But you're you brought up a good point in that it seems to me like the college system in Florida, the higher education system, is pushing more kids to go to community colleges and then transferring in. So we might be seeing a greater and greater occurrence of this happening. So it'll be interesting to see if more universities have consortium agreements. Um, yeah, I know. I know Ronnie has one down at FIU. Right. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's a difficult thing that I don't think that we're going to solve probably this year effectively. Um, right. But I do think it's a discussion point for us all to have is how, how do we all feel about it? Um, you know, these kids have to play somewhere and we don't, Unfortunately, the men's programming, and we talked about this to kind of lose back to what we're talking about, is the ecosystem of women. It just doesn't fit. I think if there was a genuine U23, you know, league out there for them to play in, I think the answer to this is straightforward, is they just go play for the local U23 team. But that doesn't exist. There isn't. And I just don't see it existing here in the next number of years. So we've got these kids that's sitting in there that need to play. Now, the flip side is probably where you come from. What would stop me from going into Valencia and trying to recruit more kids in there? So I just have a whole bunch of those as well, as well as kids on campus. And I think the same problem is I have tons to recruit on campus and I still can't get them in. What would make me do any better getting them out of Valencia? I'm just talking about kids that are already existing rugby players getting the opportunity to, to play with their friends and age-appropriate people. So, but again, like I said, we're not, we're not going to be able to solve it all this year. I think we need a lot more thought behind it all around that um and i think it'll probably yeah. be interesting to to hear from other team uh, yeah, my, too. my initial reaction is that community college kids should be playing you in the u23s um so i will you know and i have been talking about men's clubs running u23s for a long time it's never gotten any traction and then also seeing the u23 experiment uh, I would say was not really that successful uh, as far as men's clubs seeing value in running U23 programs. Agreed. So I agree that it's not going to happen in the near short-term future. Um, so what do we do? Uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm open for discussion. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm not against consortium agreements, but um, I think it does to you know, like your point, if there was a U23 program locally, then, there, then we shouldn't have allow it. So there could be, there could be, I'm, a, I'm more inclined to say yes on consortium agreements if they are stipulations in place, right? Like if there's a local U23 program, you can't have a consortium agreement. I'm, that I'm more okay with. Um, you know, like if you have a consortium agreement and in order to maintain it, you have to do more work, right? Because a university is going to be, you know, a club is going to benefit from something that they'd had no impact on. So maybe they have to do something else to help out the 
rugby community. Okay, now we're talking some. Now we're talking. You know, like now I'm gonna do that. And I think I think that's a really cool concept, right? You want dispensation for something. You could even layer it down to you know waiver players. You know, you have four waiver players. You need to put in four hours of work in back into the community for for getting players outside of the spectrum. You know, I I think that could be too far, but I like that concept. I like that. You're basically rewarding people for doing, you're not punishing them, you're rewarding them for doing good deeds back into the community and driving these connections that we want. So I think that's a, it's a really smart solution. Yeah. So, okay. So I think we've got this for quite some yep. time. Yep. Um, for sure. Yeah. Any uh, closing comments, questions there, Evan? Well, thank you for letting me talk a little bit more this time, Kirk. Yeah. I, I, I know I occupy quite a bit of oxygen. So, um, Sometimes I'm okay sharing. So yeah, I also would like to. I think it'd be great if we have more some more coaches jump on. Um, and I'm, and I know we're just kind of feeling this out, but I think it'd be really cool to get a couple more to jump on who are, who have some interesting topics they want to discuss. Um, maybe less about their programming and more about their thoughts in a whole from the from the FCC. Yeah, I the idea of getting Kyle Lazera on, I think, would be a great. Uh, person to hear from him and Murray. I think those guys have some interesting uh, viewpoints there from the UCF. You know, Kyle is a U20 play. Yeah, USR, USF. I wish I had him, but uh, <laughs> I try to play. Everyone wishes they had him. Um, yeah, I'd be interested to hear why he stayed in Florida. You know, he was a, a U20s player, U high school and U20 um, All American. Okay. Kyle was at least. Yeah. Him, I'd love to get Usti hit his thoughts on uh, high performance, all stars. You know, yeah. we can talk academies, we can talk anything you guys want, but um, yeah, like, yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, thanks a lot, guys, for your time. Uh, if you got any questions or comments, love to hear it. Don't forget that the summit is coming up in a couple weeks. Um, Evan, you want to give some details on that again? Yeah, so the summit. Finally got it all locked away. September 11th is the summit. AGM is September 12th. We're in Vero Beach at Dodger Town. Um, and basically, we have Rugby ATL, the 404 coaches coming in to do some coach development, which is going to be great. Uh, we have a bunch of stuff series planned. We have some more presentations as well from a guy who does a lot of data analysis um, from video analysis. So he's going to give his presentation too. Um, and then the AGM on Sunday. So we'll be sending out more information um, as much as we can um, early next week uh, for everybody. So if you don't get it, and but Kirk gets it, I'll make sure Kirk pops it out to everybody. Um, but just keep your ears down. We'd love to see everybody at the summit on Saturday. All right. So we got the summit on Saturday, the AGM on Sunday. So action-packed weekend down at Bureau. Love to see you guys there. There's information about hotel rooms and stuff like that from guys coming from far away. Is there yep. any money for people that are traveling far distances or is it all? Um, so the hotel, the costs were basically for the facility, um, the hotels on site and all of that. We're, we're coming in at 50%. So we're covering 50% and then the, the, the coaches will be paying the other, your other half. So you're getting a pretty cheap price. I think it's like single occupancy at $75 a night, which includes, uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, the conference, and a hotel room. So uh, that's a pretty good, pretty good price for that, um, considering uh, where we're at. All right, great. 
All right, fellas, hope to see you guys there at the summit in AGM. Have a great day.